Welcome to Highway Christian Community Sermon Downloads. For more sermons, please visit our website. We know you will be blessed as you listen. Take care and God bless. Great morning to be here. Just uh, welcome you and uh, we uh, trust that this morning God would really minister to your hearts. Yes, hi. So, yeah, no problem, no problem. Your church. No, no, at church, yeah. Okay, but just quickly, yeah? Yeah, no, they won by about 18 points. I mean, I was thrilled. I was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, no, this coming Wednesday, yeah. Yeah, no, the whole family will be at the airport. You know the drill. Yeah. That's right, yeah. He's, he's having the, the plaster cast taken off on Wednesday. Yeah, as well. So it's just... Look, sorry, I can't talk long now. Um, yeah, okay, all right, later then. Okay, all right, bye-bye. Sorry, guys, I just had to take, take that uh, quickly this morning. <laughs> now, the interesting thing with listening to someone on the phone is you only get to hear the one side of the story. And you've got to reconstruct what's going on the other side which is not always so easy, if you don't know anything about that person, if you don't know what their family culture is, if you don't know what their historical situation is, if you don't know what their sports interests are, if you don't know anything about uh, what they believe, their belief systems. Now, now, now judging from that phone call, uh, if you know those things about my life, our historical, historical, cultural, family, sports interests. You would have been able to, did most of you sort of track a little bit? Unless you're a visitor, you don't know who I was talking to. Um, you know a little, you've got to know a little bit about the background. And, and as we come into the study of Corinthians, it's a very interesting book in the Bible because if we don't have any background, cultural, historical knowledge of the book, we're only hearing one side of the conversation. And then we're left to make deductions which might lead us down rabbit trails. And the amazing thing is there is a mountain of historical evidence, background, knowledge around the culture, around the belief systems. And we learned this last Monday night that the way to approach reconstruction of a book like Corinthians is just to ask the right questions. It's called the hermeneutical spiral, but it's a very long word. So let's just substitute it with asking the right questions. Who is talking to who? And you might as well start opening your books, your Bible to Corinthians, because that's where we're going to pitch ourselves this morning. I do hope you got your Bible. You're not going to be spoiled with the verses coming up today. This is the month of the Bible. So download it, upload it, 
sit next to a Christian, do whatever you've got to do. Be nice if you saw this in your own Bibles. Corinthians, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, Acts, Corinthians. Does that help? So, it's quite interesting. This city of Corinth was uh, demolished, but by about 45 B.C., the emperor Caesar, Augustus, put plans into place, and at some stage, uh, under the, the leadership of and I knew all these things in the back of my head, but standing in front of you, I'm like stage fright. But Julius Caesar started building what became the prince of cities of the Roman Greek era. It was a very prosperous city. It was on the coast, so it was a port city, a lot of trade, transport. People came from afar to live there because it had good governance, good economics, and you could become quite rich. And there was disparity between the rich and the poor in Corinth, but it was certainly a, a seedbed for making good money. But at the same time, that attracted a lot of other stuff. Uh, the, the Roman belief system around the pagan ideologies of, of the Greek gods, and Neptune and Poseidon, Uh, gods of the sea, and Aphrodite, the sex god. There were over a thousand temples in the city that were frequented readily by people from all over the Greek kingdom, which brought in a large revenue. It was the sex god, their worship of sex. And they had all these things going on in this very prosperous, mobile, upward, affluent, hip city that you can imagine maybe parts of the north coast or Cape Town, or places that are fairly new, not old money, new money, and that attracted the yuppie of the day. Into this situation, we see that Paul is led by God and called to come and plant this church. And he spends about three, uh, uh, sorry, 18 months to get there, and it's only two years later that he writes this letter. But in the 18 months he's there, it's very interesting, you can read in uh, Acts 18 is the uh, historical uh, journey of Paul into Corinth. It's there where he met Aquila and Priscilla. They were also tent makers, he worked with them, and it says that he went regularly down to the temple to preach. Remember the Jews had been kicked out of Rome under Caesar Augustus, uh, the Christians had become more popular, even though later persecutions were coming. But a lot of Jews gravitated down to Archaea, and especially um, Athens, Ephesus, and Corinth. And in Corinth, they started this tent-making business, which freed them up to just go and Paul to preach the gospel regularly at the synagogues, where there seemed to be an open forum to get up and preach, and Crispus, Sir Crispus, whatever his title was, Rabbi Crispus probably, uh, got converted. And a whole lot of the Jewish believers at the temple converted to Christianity. This caused an uproar, as you can read in Acts 18. 
but uh, Paul gets favor. It was there where the Lord appeared to Paul and said, don't fear, Paul, because there are many people in this place and no harm is going to come to you. It's the only account in the book of Acts other than his grand conversion where Jesus actually appears and speaks to him. It was in this context of Corinth where he then took Aquila and Priscilla and they went to Ephesus before Paul made his journey to Jerusalem. And in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla met a man by the name of Apollos who later became one of the great leaders in the church. And we'll read about him in the book of Corinth. But Apollos only knew the way of conversion. He was a very eloquent, very persuasive, very educated man. But Aquila and Priscilla had to lead him into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's one thing to be very eloquent. It's one thing to be very uh, persuasive. But it's another thing to move in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And Apollos learned that. He was teachable enough. And he caught that. And he went to Corinth and he had a huge influence. So Aquila and Priscilla stay in Ephesus. And Paul goes on to Jerusalem does another journey, and it's about two years later that he writes this letter of which we only have the one side of the conversation. So if you were there on Monday night and I encouraged you to read through the book to get a general overview, and if you weren't there this last Monday and you're going to be with us tomorrow night, um, there's a reduced outline that you can grab afterwards which will help you and prepare you for tomorrow night's teaching because we're going to stay on this topic. Last week was looking at the tools of how to get both another side of the conversation. This morning I want to speak into that conversation by giving you a few clues that we find in Corinth. First the background, a little bit of background information which some of you sitting here thinking I didn't know I was going to attend a history lesson today. But if we don't get the background, we don't know who won the rugby. We don't know who Steve was supporting. If this conversation is recorded and played in 2,000 years' time, no one will know what we're talking about. Unless they know about the lions. Okay, sorry about that, guys. I've switched allegiance as of yesterday. All right, everyone's Bible open to Corinth. All right, so there's a, there are two clues over here that give us the, the broad outline of why Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. The first one is he's responding to news from Corinth. Now, in your Bibles, in chapter 1 and verse 10, you'll read this statement in verse 11. There are two clues I'm going to share with you that give us this basic structure of the reason behind this phone call. All right? Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no division among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. 
So that was the first thing that was brought to Paul's attention, that there were quarrels. And these quarrels had to do with division in the church, with an incestuous man, uh, with his mother-in-law or his uh, stepmother, uh, uh, lawsuits amongst the believers, and sexual immorality. These were the reports that came from Chloe's house, which he deals with in the first six chapters, which we're not going to have time to address all those right now. But then the second clue as to the structure behind the phone call is found in Paul. There was a Paul answering a letter from Corinth. And now we have to turn to chapter 7 and verse 1, where it says, Are you there? Now, for the matters you wrote about. And then he goes on and he lists several over the next several chapters dealing with behavior within marriage, what to do with your unmarried daughter, what to do about food that's been sacrificed to idols and then Christians and their freedom eat it. Uh, he speaks about uh, the culture of women's heads being covered or plaited up which we might look in more detail tomorrow night. The abuse of the Lord's Supper. People going there is an excuse to get drunk. Uh, He talks about spiritual gifts and how they operate in a local church. He speaks that the body is going to be resurrected, and uh, he talks about the finances and the collection in the local church within the next several chapters of Corinth, all of which, unfortunately, in a short space like this, we can't get to. But a quick read through the book of Corinth will identify those key topics around, firstly, a response to the news from Chloe's household, and secondly, a letter that he received to address these. And that helps you see why was Paul talking about the resurrection from the dead. Because obviously he'd been questioned and there were some misunderstandings. He wasn't just using words in vain. He wasn't just writing a letter because you're sitting in a prison somewhere and had nothing else to do. So, there are some major problems. Would you agree with me? When we just surmise that short list of situations that they faced, you've got to agree that this church was quite radical for being involved in the customs and the influences of the city of Corinth that had creeped in. And it was a nightmare, someone said. It was the church that you didn't want to join in a hurry. But it was the only church in Corinth. Paul had given his life for this church. He'd heard a message from God that pulled him out of his career where he was heading to be a a major leader over the Pharisees. And as a Pharisee of Pharisees, he'd moved away from his very prosperous, very high position in Judaism and followed when Jesus Christ appeared to him and called him. Paul's life changed. His purpose changed. 
His vision for his life changed. He just fell in love with this Jesus and he followed him. He went through shipwrecks. He went through beatings. He went through being stoned. He went through being uh, rejected from his own people and all kinds of calamities and left for dead and went through hunger and thirst and, and nakedness and peril. And all of these things he lists as the, the marks on his life since he followed the cause to take the gospel where the gospel had never been before to a pagan people steeped in ideologies of foolishness, ideologies, what they thought were grand wisdom and grand eloquence. And he took a message that would transform and change their lives. And this church that he poured his life out for, 18 months later, are writing. And as you see the whole context of the letter, basically saying we want nothing to do with you anymore. But he sees that of all these issues he could talk into, he picks one out. And that's interesting. There's another clue for us. Why does he pick out the first of these drifts that he addresses is the one of division? And not even division itself, but the underlying root of division. You know division is a very ugly thing? You know division like nothing else will destroy a church? And their division came around the fact that they held to the eloquent teachers. And even Apollos fell into that category because of his high intelligence and uh, capabilities to swoon the crowd. And he was a wordsmith. He could... Uh, his eloquence could, could draw them in and capture their thinking and make them laugh and cry and jump for joy. You know, some people have got that gift. It's wonderful. I listen to T.D. Jakes and I think, how does he do it? That's a gift. Nothing wrong with having the gift. Problem is when people just want to follow that gift. And I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. But that's what was happening here. Some were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Silas. I'm, because they had misunderstood. And because of the culture that went after highfalutin ideologies and philosophies, and especially the rhetoric of the day, the clever crafted speaking that drew people in, they were expecting the same from Paul and his message and now, 18 months later, they were a little bit bored. So Paul has to write to address division. Because division, this misunderstanding of wisdom, he, he uses the word wise 27 times here in the first few chapters. He only uses that word 40 times in all of the books together. Because there was this pseudo, pseudo intoxication with wisdom and grand messages, and he wanted to bring them back to the simplicity of what it was all about. And before he even gets in to addressing this, he does something very unusual. He separates their behavior from their identity. Look in chapter 1, from verse 2. To the church of Corinth, to the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified. Now he's talking to people who've been sanctified, made holy in Christ. 
that have been called to be His holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way with all speech, with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed and He will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless. Say blameless. He can keep you to be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who called you into fellowship with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, He first reminds them of who they really are. Isn't that a good way to preach the gospel? Isn't that a good way to address Christians? It's sometimes just to remind them, in the midst of all these other drifts, in the midst of all these other perversions, in the midst of them being caught up in things that are horrific, he wants to remind them that he's separating who they are from what they're doing. God hates the sin, but he loves the person. And he wants to remind them of that. Problem in Christianity today and too many sermons that are preached is we throw both into the same category. And we leave people feeling like God hates the sin and he hates them too. Thank God for this grace that came to them. This grace that came to separate in their minds. That they were sanctified. That they were called. That they were chosen. That they were lacking no good gift. And God would keep them blameless to the very end. They needed to hear that. We also need to hear that. But division is a terrible thing. And underlying this division that started manifesting itself in all these other behavioral problems was this obsession with this higher eloquence and wisdom and experience. Ah, people running off to this. Four steps to how to produce gold dust in a service. Seven steps of how to step through a portal into a different realm. Nine steps, how to levitate to the glory of God. You can't believe how much garbage is out there. How to grow your own diamonds in your back garden by faith. I'm telling you, church, it's there. And people run for it. They love it. And I feel foolish like Paul. I've got to come up and say, I've got to just preach out the Bible again. Sorry, this year of discipleship might have disappointed you because it's about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and prayer and the Bible and getting soul saved. We're not doing astral traveling this year. 101. Sorry to disappoint you. I try to identify with this. His frustrations, as I've read through and through and through in different translations and saturated myself with this. I caught the heart of this apostle crying out. But he first establishes them in who they are because pastors want to get up and beat the flock. Division is a serious, serious matter. Look at this verse in chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple 
and that God's spirit lives among you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. And you together, say together, are the temple. This is not talking about you individually. This verse. There's another place where it's referring to the individual in a sex act. Here, he's talking about them in community. And all the stuff he writes up from chapter 1 to chapter 3 is to establish this important fact that their their division based on this following this one and following that one. I want to just be of the worship team. and I just want to be of the children's team. I just want to be of this outreach team. I want to follow that prophet and, and that apostle. And I want to just do my little thing without any thought to the rest of the body. Hello? Now, those things are all good. Don't get me wrong. Funny story. One of our pastors went down to Stilbar to plant a church. And a guy came along and said, help with worship in the church. And didn't have anyone else, so... Yes, please come help. He played. After he finished worship, he noted the guy packed his bags, disappeared. And this happened three Sundays in a row. And eventually, pastor went to him and said, I noticed straight after you finished worship, you just pack your bag and leave. Is there a problem? Is there... He says, no, no, I'll go and help out in other churches as well. My little gift used my way for who I want to, when I want to, without any thought to the fact that this temple, the local church, is a, is a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells amongst a group of covenant people who are in community, who don't just care about their own little function, their own little gift, their own little thing they do well. Because we need those gifts, functions, and things they do well. But they do it with an attitude of what's good for the bigger body. What's good for the other church? When last did you step out of that one little thing you do and ask, how's it going with Donna and the children? Or stepped out of that and asked, how's it going with uh, uh, Dave and Rob and the worship? How's it going with the the loaves and uh, God's cupboard? How's it going with the guys that faithfully every Sunday come and set up and make things? How how are they doing? How how are the finances in the church? How are the uh, poor being taken care of? How are the, the... Uh, hello, am I being going too far off the topic here? You see, what Paul says, if I live in a way that hurts the temple, it's not God's not happy with it. One of the biggest areas is gossip. You know, we can hear a little story, and then because it's interesting and it happens to be about an elder or a leader, or, we can go along and just pass that on because it's an interesting story. You know what we're doing in the name of prayer? We're gossiping. Bible says, go to the person and speak to them. If you hear something about someone, oh, just for prayer purposes, let's discuss this. No, no, no. You go to the person, you say, this came to me, and and I told them when they told me, because they said, oh, you're not going to tell who told. And I said, sorry, that doesn't work for me. If you told me, then you've got to also come with me to tell them. Don't come to me and say, Steve, I, I want to tell you something about your wife, but you're not allowed to tell her that it was me. Or, you, you know, I, Pastor, I want to tell you something about this person. But you know, I said, no, 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 if you, you knew it, you come with me and we're going to do the biblical thing. 
division in a church, when people are just looking out for themselves, their own self-interest, their own little ministries, their own little, uh, 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 what blows their hair back, gossip, slander, putting people above other people. These might, our problem might not be that some are saying I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, but there's other problems. I'm glad to report there's no major division in this church right now, and I can thank God for that, and I'm not preaching this to get at somebody's case. Okay? I'm just telling you that division was the thing he dealt with because it's the most destructive thing in the church. Why didn't he talk about the incest first? Why didn't he talk about the, the getting drunk at communion first? Why, why didn't he talk about women wearing hats? Okay, because that's a really important one. Why didn't he talk about the offering and the giving? In fact, he leaves that one for last. I think he had the same kind of fingers pointed at him as many other ministries do. So, so, he deals with this first, but he deals with the underlying philosophy of it. Now, now let's say Chloe's house had sent you this letter. Worried about the division, people following other leaders. How would you deal with it? Well, I'm glad I asked you that. Because Paul sees through the division to a deeper problem. Their quest for and pride in and fascination with this higher eloquent wisdom. So he does three things. Very interesting. Because in their quest for and fascination with this higher eloquence and wisdom, unlike the Galatian problem, which was legalism, the Corinthians have misunderstood the relationship of the cross as being central to the gospel and salvation, number one. And we'll come back to these, but let me give you, there's only three and then we're going to wind it up, okay? Two, in their quest for and fascination with this higher eloquence of wisdom and philosophy, they forgot where revelation of this message comes from. And then thirdly, in their quest for and fascination with this higher uh, philosophy and, and eloquence and rhetoric, soul-moving rhetoric, they have seriously misunderstood the roles of their leaders. And that one is a much bigger topic, and I'm going to have to leave that for tomorrow night. If you, think, um, if you think that's a little ad, it probably is, but it actually, it's because there's too much. I want to let you out here before 11 o'clock. So. All right, so let's quickly go through. Is that my daughter phoning again? Okay, so we've, we're going to deal firstly. First of those three uh, misunderstandings, if you like. Um, in their quest for higher eloquent wisdom, they have misunderstood the nature of salvation, have lost their message in the cross. Paul does three things. Very interesting. Number one, he talks about a foolish message. Read with me in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. I told you you're going to be looking in your Bibles today. And we get spoiled every Sunday with the verses coming up, eh? We forget to bring our Bibles to church. Me too. Okay, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written, 
I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intellect, intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the t- teacher of the law? Where is this philosopher of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For, here we go, this is the point. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Wow. He settles it right there. You looking to the wisdom of this world... Let me tell you something about the wisdom of this world. God is so wise that they in their wisdom could not find him because what he did looked so foolish. But what he did in foolishness is wiser than the greatest wisdom they could ever have come up with. Because if they did know his wisdom, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Because God's wisdom is Foolishness to man, but it's wisdom because it has the cross as its center. And man and his wisdom can never find the cross because he's relying on uh, philosophy. He's relying on human intellect. He's relying on eloquence to to be able to uh, change his mind. But God says, I come in the foolishness of what was preached because it's in this message of the death and the burial and the rising up of Jesus on the third day that God says, if you believe in that, you shall be saved. That's what he's reporting back to their need for this pseudo-wisdom, the foolishness of the message. Secondly, the foolishness of the people that this message came to. Verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. He's saying to them, yes, compare me and this message to all your influential, superior philosophical teachers of religion. And then he's a little bit sarcastic here because he's saying, if this message was really for the wise, I mean, don't take me wrong now, but if this message was really for the wise and the super intelligent and intellectual, then um, why did it come to you? doesn't stop there. Chapter 2 and verse 1. 
And so it was with me. Who's talking? Paul. You see, the third thing showing up, the folly of this quest for wisdom, is ordinary people like the apostle. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching, unlike your other philosophers, were not with wise and persuasive words, but it came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And the reason for all this? So that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You're looking for wisdom. Let me remind you that God's foolishness cannot be understood by the greatest of man's wisdom. And man's greatest wisdom is foolishness to God. And by the way, while I'm reminding you about that, let me just remind you of who you were. And let me remind you of how I came to you. You see, this is why Paul came to them in weakness. Not because he was weak. This is why he came giving them milk. Not because he didn't have a wisdom to impart to them. He was standing contra culture to the spirit of the day. Which was this obsession and fascination with philosophical eloquently pronounced mysticism and truths. And he came with a man with a message. And he saw it transform their lives 18 months earlier when he came into this pagan city. He saw one by one how people converted to Christianity. And now 18 months later, he's having to write a letter to bring direction. But who says they're going to listen to him? Who does he think he is? He hasn't been around for 18 months. Come along tomorrow night. We'll see how he tackles that one. He does all this because he wants their faith not to stand in man's wisdom, but in God's power. The second one, was in their quest for fascination with higher eloquent wisdom, they forgot where this revelation of the message really came from in the first place. Chapter 2 and verse 10 says, These are the things God revealed by His Spirit. The Spirit searches out all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What you have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritually taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God 
but considers them foolishness. They cannot understand them because they are only discerned through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject. Okay, up to verse 14, because they are only discerned. Paul's saying, guys, when you got saved, you received the Spirit. You knew by revelation and deep conviction that what this message was and how it could transform your life and how it could transform a community and how that the church in Corinth would be the authentic alternative to a wicked and perverse culture. And we can't allow anything to happen in the temple because if you allow division to come into this temple, we'll be destroyed. And if we destroy God's temple, God is going to sort us out. Oh, I thought, oh, grace, grace, grace. Why would God? Now let me tell you something about grace as your pastor. Humbly is okay. If grace sees its toddler walking into the oncoming traffic, grace will grab church by the scruff and pull baby church out of the road, even if it rips all the buttons down little church toddler's front shirt. Amen. He's saying, the church is God's temple. Everything that the old covenant pointed to was this community of believers. Don't mess with it. Don't divide it. Don't hurt it. Don't only look to it for your own edification and comfort and satisfaction. Love that church. Love that temple. Pray for it. Give to it. Serve it. Make it prosperous. Make it blessed. Because it is the alternative in the world today. The kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Satan's plans. By the Spirit. You've got this revelation. You couldn't have got it any other way, Corinthians. Don't forget that. And finally, in the quest and fascination for high eloquent wisdom, philosophies, they had a serious understanding of the roles of their leaders. And you can see why I can't get to that this morning because it is half past ten and I like to honor my commitment to finish now so that if we need to have any ministry, Dave, you've got a song for us, please come up. What do we see here this morning, church? We see an apostle bringing the word back to the main issue, which was the division in the church. And he never dialed down his message to be palatable to the modern philosophies, but he kept on preaching a message of the cross that was the wisdom of God, even if it was seen as foolish to man. And why was it seen as foolish? Because the cross represented the punishment of a criminal. The same way you see a whole lot of men chained up in overalls, you know, getting onto a, a, a prison van. Something deep down goes, they probably deserved it. I'm glad they off the street. Come on. Come on. When else you saw a criminal and you didn't think, they, they, they probably deserved it. Now, 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 now that's what it looked like when someone was carrying a cross. And the philosopher of the day is saying, your God made himself look like an idiot. Our God, the God of thunder. Our gods are the God of the sea. 
for Poseidon and Neptune and our God loves sex. Sex for everybody. Rah, 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 rah. Except historical documents say their hospitals were so full of people with sexually transmitted nearly wiped out their whole community. Your God is foolish. He's weak. And it doesn't stop there. You want me to become like him. You're telling me I'm going to put my faith in that foolishness. Come on. And Paul says, I knew nothing else when I was among you. Now I'm talking to people this morning who've come to know this. But you just got to rewind into the other side of the conversation. Let's stand up together. Go down. Yes, Lord, let your word penetrate deep into our hearts. Let your word penetrate deep into our hearts today, Lord. We want to see your temple built up. We stand against every form of division. Jesus Because Christ, we want Jesus to be exalted. I look place. upon your sacrifice. You, you became nothing. Poured out to death many times. I've wondered at your gift of life. I'm in that place.